My next guest is Professor of Science Communication at the University of Westminster in London and has written a book that doubtless he'll be talking about at the Emirates Lit Fest in early March, The Knowledge How to Rebuild the World After an Apocalypse. A nice cheerful subject to be talking about <laughs> here on this Emirates flight. Professor Lewis Darnell, thank you for joining us here on Emirates World. We're going to talk also about your new book in a second, but let's talk about the, the knowledge, um, How to Rebuild Our World After an Apocalypse. Is the apocalypse coming anytime soon? <laughs> no, it's 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 not. And to be honest, just between you and me and, and everyone who's listening, uh, the book, The Knowledge, hasn't actually got anything at all to do with the end of the world. But I thought what would make a really interesting thought experiment would be to imagine that everything we just take for granted in our everyday lives were to disappear tomorrow. So, so playing along these tropes of things like uh, the Walking Dead TV series you might have seen, and just imagine that all of that has collapsed and disappeared tomorrow. And then ask the question, well, what now? What could you do as an individual to keep yourself alive, to provide for yourself, to, to, to make the food that you would have just popped into supermarkets picked up, to make the kind of tools and materials that we use every day without even thinking about? But even more importantly than that, to look at how you could actually go about rebooting the whole of civilization from scratch? Could you accelerate our progression back through history as quickly as possible if only you knew the right things, the right scientific discoveries, the right technological inventions? And that's what the knowledge is about. It's not really about the end of the world. It's about our world and how it works behind the scenes, what's going on under the, under the bonnet. We take so many things for granted. You want water, you turn on the tap. You turn on the tap and it just appears magically for you. And very few of us, and myself included, when I first sat down to research and write this book, had no idea at all how any of this stuff actually happened. Like just other people in society, other people in civilization did it. And we're all utterly dependent on reliance on each other. And I thought an interesting way of exploring, well, how does that actually work? Is to imagine that it stops working and you have to start trying to piece it back together yourself. Seriously, could we have an apocalypse? I mean, if there was one, what form would it take? Well, I mean, there, there are various uh, existential hazards, as, as they're known, various catastrophes that aren't improbable, are impossible, they're unlikely, but they're not completely impossible. And this is everything from an asteroid strike slamming down onto the Earth to maybe some kind of global nuclear war or perhaps a pandemic outbreak, a very virulent virus breaks out and starts killing people, which would be similar to what happened with the Black Death, the bubonic plague in the 1300s. But actually, the best way for the world to end, as it were, if I told you the world was about to end tomorrow, and you are about to survive, congratulations, and I give you a menu of what form of apocalypse you would want to try and survive and rebuild afterwards, I would strongly recommend you don't pick nuclear holocaust or asteroid strike because it leaves the world in such a tattered state of devastation afterwards. And actually maybe the best way for the world to end, for recovering as quickly as possible afterwards, would be something like this pandemic disease outbreak because it would kill the people quickly, but it would leave all the stuff left behind. You'd have this period of, of the grace period, as I call it in the knowledge, where you could scavenge and forage for what you need as you start relearning everything else from scratch and starting to become a bit more self-reliant and, and making and building things for yourself.
Elon Musk wants to establish a colony on Mars, um, if you like, a, a little bit of a yeah. insurance policy. <laughs> how, how feasible is that from a scientific point of view? Well, well, actually, that's exactly the same question as I answered the knowledge, but just phrased very differently. Let, let's imagine you're not trying to restart civilization on Earth after an apocalypse, but create a self-sustaining society on another world, maybe Mars. What, what are the things you fundamentally need to prop up everything else? and things interconnect and, and relate with each other. And so I think Elon Musk is on absolutely the right idea here, that we don't want to keep all of our eggs in one basket. We want to have this insurance policy, as you put it. And Mars is a, is a very sensible place to, to save that backup file, as really? it were. To, well, Mars is, is the next-door neighbour planet for the Earth. It, it's it's the, the closest place we can go to. Um, it's, it's very much Earth-like in its fundamental uh, attributes. It's a rocky planet. It's got a lot of ice underground that we could mine to make for drinking water and then create oxygen to breathe from. Um, you, would, you would have to live in, in habitats at first, so you wouldn't just be able to walk around on the surface of Mars without a spacesuit on. So you'd have to live indoors the whole time. But when we start to look at the very long term, there's a related idea known as terraforming, starting to make Mars to be much more like the Earth, which would essentially be turning back the hands of the clock in Mars's own history. It used to be much, much more Earth-like than it is now. So we would start pumping its atmosphere to be much thicker and give the, the planet a warmer blanket with um, the greenhouse effect. Um, we would start trying to liberate all of that frozen ice into seas and, and oceans that, that Mars once had and eventually start trying to, to green Mars, to turn it from a red planet to a green planet, a planet with vegetation and, and, and plants on the surface. My goodness me. <laughs> I don't think you and I would be going to be around to, to see that happening. So, so this would take centuries. This is a very long-term plan for humanity. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pleased you made that point. <laughs> Let's talk about your new book, uh, mm. Lewis. Uh, it's called Origins. Um, so uh, it, it's out in January, in fact, this month. Yep. Tell us all about it. Uh, what's, what's the origin of Origins? <laughs> so, so for Origins, um, how the Earth made us, I essentially wanted to move on from the last book, from the knowledge, and not look at how human ingenuity and resourcefulness made the modern world around us, but look at how even more fundamentally than that, that the planet that we live on, that the earth that we've grown up on has formed the stage for this whole history, this whole human story. And so Origins looks at everything from the, the absolute origin. Where does humanity come from? What was quirky and weird about the environment in East Africa five million years ago when, uh, uh, when primates and an ape-like species started evolving into hominins, which were human-like species, and then actually created Homo sapiens ourselves as this uniquely intelligent and versatile and communicative species. There was something very weird with the plate tectonics that created us as a species. Um, and then moving on, it was um, the pulsing of the Ice Ages that allowed us to migrate around the world and become the most widely spread animal species on the planet. So each of these fundamental steps in the human story have got deep fundamental um, causes, deep planetary causes, which is what I wanted to explore in Origins. And is it very much set in the past or, or do you bring it right up to date? Yeah, so the, the book covers uh, only five million years of history. So we, <laughs> Not we, much. Not much. So it's, 
it's, it's a, a quick pace for 300 pages of a book. So it's everything from our own origins five million years ago to just a couple of years ago and the most recent um, presidential election in the United States. And if you look at the political map, the voting map, there's actually some um, deep geological traces behind what's going on. So if you look in the southeast of the US, in the, in the kind of Florida region, it's um, almost completely a Republican voting area. There's a great big sea of red in the presidential map. But curiously, threading its way across this sea of red is a distinct band of blue, of Democrat counties. And for some bizarre reason, these Democrat counties are absolutely right on top of a band of Cretaceous rocks, of 75 million-year-old rocks that have been eroded and reappeared on the surface. So the question is, why on earth would people choose to vote Democrat because they happen to be walking around on 75 million-year-old rocks rather than anything else? And if you trace that story back, you get from the politics right back down to the geology of our planet because those rocks are very organic-rich. They're very fertile when they get turned into soil. And so back in the 1800s, when people were looking to grow cash crops in the area, they picked cotton, which grow very well in that fertile soil. And cotton's a very fiddly thing to cultivate. You, you need humans to do it. And at that time, that meant slaves. So a lot of Africans were transported across that part of the world to grow the cotton for them. And they've largely stuck around over the 200 years of subsequent history. They've subscribed to Democrat values of, of, of um, social services and all these kind of things that get wrapped up in, in Democrat politics, which goes all the way back 75 million years wow. to, the, to that original That's extraordinary. Band. That's absolutely extraordinary. So what I've tried to do in this book is explore a lot of those deep connections that go from the world we walk around and see every day to the geology that's under our feet and, and planetary processes that explain them. It's, you know, it's, these things are literally invisible under the surface and we're trying to, to make them visible and explore them. Now, this isn't your first visit to Dubai for the Lit Fest. You've been before. No, I was back. Uh, so I was uh, there a couple of years ago, two years ago. Had a very, very good time. It's a wonderful festival. There's Are you a, looking forward to it this time? I'm really looking forward to it. Not just to, to speak myself and, and engage with the audiences, which is always a, a great pleasure and privilege, but mostly, to be honest, to be able to sit in and all the other talks, which are absolutely fascinating. There's an enormous diversity of events and talks and things going on at the Emirates Literary Festival, from, from novelists up to scientists and historians and children's authors. And what about Dubai as a city? I mean, you're a scientist, you embrace new technology. Is it a, a place that excites you? Well, from what I know of Dubai, from, from my last visit, it's very much a hub of, of technology and very forward-looking. You know, it has the, the tallest building anywhere on the planet, and there's a lot of fascinating engineering and science that you know fascinates me that goes into to making things like these these enormous skyscrapers great it's been fascinating talking to you as usual good luck with the new book which will be a first for i think is this the first time you'll be talking about it at a literary festival it will be it will be my first event on, on the tour fantastic well thank you very much for joining us here on emirates world i wish you a safe and comfortable flight en route to dubai thank you